Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an, alt- made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the, Lord, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between me and you, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, Walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Peace be with you. My name is Paul. For those of you I haven't met, so glad to see you this morning. It's an honor to be preaching the word for us and to be gathered in Jesus' name for a time of worship. Today, we are continuing a sermon series through the story of the life of Abraham from uh, a section of the book of Genesis. We began this series a couple of weeks ago, and if you missed the first couple of sermons, I encourage you to catch up on the podcast or on the YouTube channel um, because it's been wonderful so far. And today, we come to a passage in which we see what it looks like to engage with faith in the face of conflict. Conflict is inevitable. It's an ordinary part of the human experience, so ordinary uh, that so many resources are surround us at each, at each moment regarding how to deal with conflict. Conflict in the workplace, conflict with your spouse, conflict with your child, with your sister, with your roommates, with whoever it is. There's personality tests that are designed to help you understand how you engage in conflict and how it might be helpful to you to know that other people might engage differently in conflict to help you resolve conflict a little bit better. But in the middle of all of this kind of melee of advice for how to deal with conflict, what's striking is that we haven't made a whole lot of progress on actually dealing with conflict in line with the wisdom of the world. But here, what we are given is some insight into the wisdom of God, what it looks like to live by faith, and how faith 
makes a difference when faced with conflict. And as we see that, we open this passage, we'll see really three things, I think, that the text is presenting to us as essential in what it looks like to engage with conflict by faith. So with that, let's jump right in. As our passage begins, we come to Abram as he comes up out of Egypt. So he's returning to the place where the Lord engaged with him at the first. And here's what we see. Verses 1 through 4. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him, Lot is his nephew, into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. He journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Last week, Matt preached a sermon on how Abram and Sarai went to Egypt uh, during a famine, and then here, Abram and Sarai and their whole family and all of their herds have been kicked out of Egypt, and we're told, though, that Abram's very rich both in livestock and in silver and in gold. And so coming out of this story that was marked by danger and by abundant blessing, where does Abraham go? He goes back, verse 3, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he'd made an altar at the first. So this would have, this is Abram, coming out of what would have undoubtedly been a traumatic experience. Fleeing in the midst of famine to a dangerous land where your life is at risk, where you're separated from your wife who is taken into the harem of the king, and then being delivered by God and sent away from Egypt with, much, with many possessions, Abram is, has been on a roller coaster of sorts in need of stability. And so where does he go to find that stability? He goes to where he met with the Lord at first. And if we let this story bring us into the life of Abraham, it's probably worth pausing on the fact that Abram is a, excuse me, forgive me in advance, I've tried to nail down Abram before he, the Lord changes his name to Abraham. Abram and Abraham are the same person. If you're familiar with, if you're unfamiliar with the story, later on it'll change to Abraham. Please, I just apologize in advance. I'll try to say Abram this whole time, and I appreciate your grace. So if we let this bring us into the story of Abram, it's probably worth noticing that he's a wandering patriarch. He's got large herds. Many shepherding peoples at this time were wandering, migrating shepherds so that the flocks would always have access to food and water. In Psalm 23, which is a well-known psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, the first few lines say, the Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. There's movement. Shepherds, because flocks and herds eat and drink a lot, the shepherd is constantly moving that flock in order to find land where they can find plenty of food and water. Uh, so to have stability in this day then was different from how you and I probably consider stability these days. If you know, our, some of you might know that our family, my wife and I and our girls, were out of our house for a month and a half until Wednesday of this week. Praise God. Um, we, thank you. Thank you. Um, but we were out of our house due to some water damage uh, restoration. It could have been way worse. But um, uh, we, stayed for a we stayed in a couple of Airbnbs and then in a couple of very generous and hospitable friends' houses while our house was being fixed uh, amidst those delays. We weren't in our house on Christmas, which was a unique kind of picture into an experience of Christmas like Jesus' family who weren't in their home. Uh, Joseph and Mary were far from home when they gave birth to Jesus. All that to say, I haven't felt settled and stable for some time. And I'm acutely aware right now of how much a part of our life and stability is influenced by being settled in a house and not moving around all the time. 
But not having a fixed home and moving around, this would have been normal for Abram and for the peoples of this day. So, of course, it's not a perfect analogy by any means, but I'm particularly struck uh, by actually the first verse in this passage. Abram came up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had. He was very wealthy, but at the same time, he could turn around and look at the caravan and see all that he had. There was no bank account that was keeping something safe in case something happened to him. It was all that he had, and it could have been gone in a moment. Right? There's a sense of danger, a sense of a lack of security, a lack of control over what happens. What if the weather turns? What if our caravan is raided? I just finished a book that talked about, among other things, what it was like to travel west across America in the days of the settlers to find green pasture. And how common it was for the caravans to either get raided and obliterated or suffer and have many die due to weather or sickness or any of the above. If you ever played Oregon Trail, um, and raise your hand if you died of dysentery. <laughs> All right, hands down. This is what uh, simply arriving at the end with your life was a victory. And so here's Abraham. He's traveling with all he has, having been delivered from danger in Egypt. And what does he do? He goes to the place where he met with the Lord of the first. He knows that he's not in control. He knows that his life is in God's hands. He knows that all that he has is from God, and he comes to God in utter dependence to worship him. We're in an age in which we've been able to insulate ourselves in many ways from the instability of the natural world. The whole project of the modern world has been to conquer the creation and subject it to our whims. We have weather forecasts now and air conditioners. We have grocery produce sections that give us tomatoes year-round, not just during tomato season. We've been able to insulate ourselves from many kinds of risk and instability in the world, and that's a good thing in many ways. Of course, we have insurance policies, and listen, without insurance, my family would be up a creek right now. But because of this, perhaps in a way that's unlike in the days of Abraham, it's very easy for us to grow complacent in our dependence on God. Rather than depending on God, we're dependent today on things like supply chains. Rather than finding our stability in our faith, we look to our circumstances and surroundings so often for stability. This is one of the reasons our church is named Sojourn. We need to be reminded at root that we are sojourners and exiles. This world is not our home. This dirt is not our hope. It can be taken away from us just as easily as it was given to us. Our roots, sojourn, need to be in heaven and not here. This life is a journey, not a destination. This church, as a church, we are an outpost on the way, a warm hut where fellow travelers can come and warm up our fingers and our toes and our hearts dreaming together about what it will be like when we arrive at our forever home and celebrating that we don't have to wonder, no matter what it is that we're going through, whether we're going to arrive at our destination because our, the future is secure. God has got us in the palm of his hand. He's leading and guiding and protecting us and shaping us through this journey. With Abram here, we see a man who's very wealthy and powerful by the world's standards, but who turns to God and says, you're in control, not me. He returns to the place with a posture of true dependence to remember where true stability comes from. That's the first thing we see in this passage. What does it look like to engage in conflict by faith? It begins with dependence. And you notice we haven't even gotten to the conflict yet. And that's purposeful. In other words, engaging with conflict with faith begins before the conflict itself. By engaging in dependence upon God. Cultivating 
dependence on God. So what does it look like for you to cultivate dependence on God? I still remember where I was the, first, the day that I came to believe in the existence of God when I was 16 years old. I was at a summer camp that I went to from middle school through partway through college, became a counselor. And for years afterwards, that same place, sitting on the waterfront of that camp, was a place that I'd go to over and over again. And it was a meaningful place for me. Because it was a, spl- it was a place where I had, had a wonderful moment of intimacy with God. Since then, there have been many other places that I've had significant moments with. And there's something significant to being in the same place where you were with the Lord. So what is that for you? It doesn't, of course, have to be a physical place per se. It doesn't have to be... Uh, a, a place, it could be a book on your shelf that God used in your life, a meaningful note from a friend or a mentor that you keep tucked in your Bible, a journal entry, a photo that calls you back to a meaningful time in your life. Where were you when the Lord met you at the first? What might it look like to cultivate a repeated remembrance of where your dependence truly is? Abram, coming out of an experience marked by both danger and blessing, returned to his first love with the goal of recapturing his worship and closeness and stability with God. What does that look like in your life? Moving on, as we read on, we see that conflict does arrive between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Look at verses 5 through 7. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. There was strife between the herdsmen. At that time, the Canaanites and Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So there is strife between these herdsmen. And why was that? The strife is almost certainly due to a lack of water. This won't be the last quarrel, uh, the last conflict over access to water in the book of Genesis, in the life of Abraham, indeed in the Bible. Um, Later on in our passage, even, we see that when Lot chooses land, the leading characteristic that is noted about the land that Lot sees is is the abundance of water. Look at verse 10 for a moment. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, which has rivers bringing life throughout the garden, like the land of Egypt, which is the kingdom of the Nile, built upon this enormous river that was the source of Egypt's wealth. And so water um, would would have been the occasioning crisis. My in-laws have cows, Lindsay's parents, which can consume upwards of 20 to 30 gallons of water per cow per day. And we are not wealthy like Abraham. They are not wealthy like If you think you multiply that by a couple thousand, that's a lot of water. Which, kind of as an aside, brings us to a question. This is the promised land. Why is it that there's this scarcity of water in this land that's supposed to be a land that would not only be sufficient for those who are alive at this time, but many more people who would be born in the future? Well, the answer is given to us there at the end of verse 7. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. In other words... When Abram and Lot return to the land of promise, it's already populated by two peoples. And those two peoples probably are already occupying the better parts of the land, so Abram and Lot are probably getting creative with what's left, and there's a scarcity of water. So there's strife. And let's read on, verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate from yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. We'll pause there. So when this strife arises, Abram approaches Lot and says, let there be no strife between us. Abram moves in the direction of peace. He sees this conflict building. 
But rather than grasping and holding on to the land that had been promised to him, he lets go of it. And he gives Lot the first choice. He was the patriarch. Right? So he could have said to his nephew Lot, listen, young man, here's where you're going. But he didn't. He lays his claim aside and puts Lot first. He lays his authority down, looks at the land that God has given to him and says, you take the first selection. The first thing we saw in this passage was Abram's dependence. The second thing we see here, coming out of this place of trust in the Lord, is a profound and humble deference. So if the first thing was dependence, the second thing we see is deference. And if we look a little bit more closely at the text, we notice that this engagement with Lot is laden with significance, particularly in the contrast that we see between Abram and Lot. Let's continue reading, starting in verse 10. Uh, let's listen to how Lot is described. Verse 10, And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Dun, dun, dun. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Let's look at Lot for a moment. Consider how he's described. First off, Lot is described as passive. While Abram draws near to address this brewing conflict, Lot seems to be doing nothing. He doesn't even speak in this entire account. So he's passive. And second thing that we see very clearly is that he is foolish. And the key way this is shown is that he follows his eyes. Rather than seeking wisdom, he simply lifts his eyes and judges the book by its cover. I'll take that one. He chose what looked like the better land, and probably he wasn't wrong. It was well watered. It was the Jordan River Valley. But just because something looks better doesn't mean that it is better. In the words of one commentator, those who walk by sight eventually learn that seeing may be misleading. Here we see that Lot's focus is on his senses and in particular on what his eyes can see. He focuses on his immediate need for water and what looks like a watery land in a way that distracts him from other important considerations like the, fan, like the fact that the land that was the richest was also populated by great sinners, as we're told in verse 13. And of course, to cap off this description of Lot, we see this obvious tone of foreboding, like I indicated when I was reading. The narrator, the narrator interjects in verse 10 that this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, showing that the Lord didn't allow this fruitful land to remain fruitful. In his foolish self-interest, Lot was blinded to wisdom and chose what turned out only to be of temporary benefit. And now I, wanna, I wonder what Abram is thinking and feeling in this moment. While the text doesn't make this clear, I have to think. There's a moment when Abram offered Lot the first choice that he hoped that Lot would respond differently. Like the story of Ruth with Naomi. When Naomi tells her daughter-in-law Ruth, go from me, and Ruth says, no, I'm with you. No, Abram, I want to stay with you and work out the complications. The fact that Lot doesn't do this puts an undertone of sadness in this story. This is the last family member still with Abram, who departs from him. I can't help but think that Abram was hoping for a different response. But, of course, while I don't know if this is how Abram felt about his response, I do know that when we defer to others, we take a risk. 
We risk that the other person will not make a good choice or even that the other person will choose something that will turn out for our harm. We run the risk of being used. For this reason, many of us don't take the risk of deferring to others. It's a risk to lay down your life for someone else because they may take your life and trample on it. The best case scenario, of course, is when you're in a relationship where both parties are deferring to one another. We talked about this just this past week in our house. Tallulah and I were talking about, um, Tallulah is our seven-year-old daughter. We were talking about in our, in our family, we're learning right now what it looks like to address situations where two people want the same thing. So two people wanting to go first at a board game or two people wanting the same chair at dinner, right? And dealing with this is, can get quite intense. But as we were talking about it and how good it is to, instead of grasping on it and deciding what you want, letting the other person choose first, Tallulah actually observed very astutely. She said, hang on, you want us not to argue, but that'll just turn into another argument. Instead of arguing for it, we'll argue that the other person go first, choose first. And I said, exactly. That is a wonderful kind of argument. This is the competition not of what I can get, but the competition of seeking to outdo one another in showing honor that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12. There's always the risk that when you defer that the other person won't. As we see here in our passage, we must remember that we are in charge of ourselves. Abram doesn't try to control Lot. He defers to him. In fact, it's probably more accurate to say that Abram defers to God in this action. He lets go of the land and entrusts God with the outcome. As a result of deferring to Lot... Abram was left with the less fertile land. We can't get around that. But, as we will see, this is the land of promise, where God would be with them. This is the first of many instances where God meets his people, not in the land of plenty, but in the wilderness. In the land where it is dry, so they must depend on the Lord, where God can unmistakably provide for and care for his people. So in this we see the difference, though, between living by faith and living by sight. In the end, this wound up being the worst mistake of Lot's life. His decision not only to part with Abraham, but to pitch his tent next to Sodom leads to a devastating outcome, as we'll see in the weeks to come. James chapter 4, the apostle James illuminates something that's, I think, really helpful for us at this point. James chapter 4, you may be familiar with it. James says, what is the cause of your, or what causes quarrels in the first place? And he, he listen to what James says. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and then you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. But God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. There's so much good in that chapter. But you hear what James says. Conflicts and quarrels come from desiring what you don't have. It comes from a mindset of scarcity. I don't have enough. In a world where conflict is the norm, what might it look like to choose the way of faith rather than the way of sight and seeking and grabbing 
In this way, we see in Abram's engagement here coming from a place of deep dependence on and trust in the Lord, his, his posture is one of humble deference. He knows that he has what he needs. He's been given the promise of God, and he's been given an identity. You, Abram, will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Because of this, Abram is earnest to engage. He keeps short accounts. He sees strife brewing and comes to Lot, who is being passive. Lot is probably thinking, maybe this will just go away on its own. But Abram draws near to him. The reason this is actually misnamed the conflict between Abram and Lot, this is the almost conflict that Abram undercuts with humble deference. As he addresses this, we see that Abram places the person over the material of the strife. Lot, let there be no strife between us. We're family, Lot. Abram lets go of the need for water, lays it down, and chooses the person in front of him. It's about us. We're family. You choose first, and then I'll take whatever you don't choose so that there might be no strife. What might it look like for you, for me, for us to be people who are known not for our arguments, but for our humility and deference? Kids, what might it be? What might it look like for you to be the one who everyone knows that's a person who's going to ask me to go first? In our evangelism, what if people who don't know Jesus or people with whom we deep, deeply disagree come away with our engagements thinking, wow, he really wanted to hear my story. Sometimes people are so focused on the issue at hand that they neglect the person right in front of them. As Christians, we get to approach people with whom we disagree profoundly from a posture that we may never win the argument, and that's okay. It's not up to us. I can entrust the outcome to the Lord while I love the person in front of me. That peace, rather than trying to grip and win, that peace only helps the winsomeness of whatever it is that you're trying to persuade them of. But letting go of the outcome and trusting God, what might it be if we were this kind of people? What might it look like to grow into a humble and deferent, meek person in the context of your relationships, of your marriage, your friendships, your workplace? As we read on, Listen to how the Lord engages with Abram after his interaction with Lot. And we're moving to the third thing. The Lord comes to Abram and says, starting in verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, says this, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one could count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, Walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Right after Abram lets go of the land, you see what happens. Right after he releases it and lays it down, do you see what God gives him? He gives it right back to him. He restates the promise of offspring and of a land. God's promise remains with the faithful. In this, we see a deepening of the contrast between Abram and Lot. Whereas Abram here was told by God to look, Lot looked for himself. Whereas Abram waited and was given the promised land, Lot simply took the best-looking land for himself. And there's an unmistakable echo of the story in the Garden of Eden. In this, uh, in this passage, Eve 
looked at the forbidden fruit and seeing that it was pleasing to the eye, she took it rather than waiting for it to be given. Lot here looks at the forbidden cities and seeing that they were pleasing to the eye, he took them rather than for waiting, rather than waiting for them to be given. Abram, however, waits upon the Lord. And if you notice here, in verse 17, the Lord invites him on a walk. This is another phrase that's laden with meaning. It calls to mind Enoch who walked with God, Noah who walked with God, Adam who would have walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day before the fall. Whereas living by sight is going off and blazing a trail on your own, walking by faith, living by faith is what it means to walk with God. Now the Bible doesn't connect Abram's faithfulness and God's blessing by way of causation, as though it's because Abram was faithful that God responded with blessing. That's not the case because Abram's faith itself, we're told, is a gift from God. But there's nevertheless a connection, if not one of causation, then one of deepening, one of abiding, between Abram's walking by faith and the Lord restating these promises to him. It's reminiscent of the invitations in the New Testament to abide in God that he might abide in us. As we look back on this today, we too can glean from this that walking by faith is the way that we abide in the promised blessing of God. And of course, the words God gives to Abram here are unique. You and I are not the father of the faithful, right? He is the father of all who believe. But while this is a unique blessing for Abram, we shouldn't explain it away so quickly. This is a picture for us that when we let go of the things that we think will give us life, and turn towards God and towards those he's given us to love, there's a promise that whatever we lose for his sake, he will repay us a hundredfold. This is a picture that encourages us that God can use everything in our lives, even the things that don't turn out the way that we might have hoped. Last week, Matt used a story from The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom, um, a beautiful story, and I, there's another story from that, another series of episodes that I want to share with you. It's a book written by a woman named Corrie Ten Boom. She's a Dutch woman in the time of World War II, and her, the Ten Booms were a family that uh, hid Jews from the Nazis. And they were caught, and they were carted off into prison, uh, and at the end of it, Corrie was the only one who survived prison in the concentration camps, and she wrote this story as a memoir, but she repeatedly in, the, in her story in this memoir says, this is less a memoir of me and more a biography of my sister, her sister Betsy and her sister Betsy's faith. I strongly encourage you to read it. But running through the whole story is the Ten Boom family's trust in the will of God. That if we trust in God, he can do far more than we can possibly imagine. When they're imprisoned and then eventually sent to a concentration camp, the field narrows and Corey and Betsy, these two sisters, are the only ones there together. The rest of the family gets separated. And over and over again, Corey tells of Betsy's faith and of her own, Corey's struggle, to maintain the faith and hope of her sister. And over and over again, Betsy's faith and hope shine in the muck of their experience in prison and in that concentration camp. When they get put in prison, Betsy is placed in a communal cell with other women, and she expresses her gratitude with joy that there's these other women who she gets to share God's word with. When they get moved from this prison to the barracks at a concentration camp, it's this over, overflowing, uh, in, flea-infested barracks in a concentration camp marked by strife and despair and grumbling and conflict, Betsy is brimming with exciting, excitement and gratitude when she walks in because here's all of these women who we get to share the word of God with. Look at all these people who don't have the hope of Christ who we've been sent to, Corey. 
The home that she makes for herself among sisters in the prison cell in the concentration camp is truly breathtaking. Betsy's hope and peace shine through the pages of her sister's memoir. When you have God, you have all that you need. And you can be open-handed with everything, even your life. Here's the thing. This story of Abram was written for our benefit, just like the story of Betsy Ten Boom. The fact that we are alive and worshiping together, though, thinking about the story of Abram, is evidence that God has made good on his promises to Abram. The fact that we're here today is evidence that God is a God who keeps his promises. And he has given us great and precious promises too. He has a place for you and me in his kingdom. The place for which you and I were created. He has secured it. He has given us the Holy Spirit to seal, seal us until the arrival of the day when we will be with him face to face. Abram learned that it was not by his own power that he would come into possession of all things. Because of this, he could freely give away what he thought was the fulfillment of the promise when prompted because he knew that God would make good on his promise later. In the words of one commentator, Abram had learned that it was not by his own plan or power that he would come into his possession, not by jealously guarding what he thought was his. God would give it to him even if he gave it away a hundred times. A person who has the promise of God's provision does not have to cling to things. The first thing that we saw in our passage is that living by faith in conflict must begin from a place of dependence. The second thing we saw was that this faith exercises itself in humble deference. And here we see the third thing. Living by faith looks like living with hopeful expectance. Expectance that God can do far more than we could possibly imagine. Trusting that whatever God's will for your life is, is far better than your own. As Betsy Ten Boom made herself at home in her cell in the concentration camp, even in the midst of great pain and suffering, she looked around at the people God had placed her with, expectant that God would turn it into something beautiful, despite what her eyes were undoubtedly tempting her to conclude. Abram didn't know specifically what would come of things when he offered Lot first choice. But he had a promise from God, and that was enough. In a world marked by conflict then, just as it is now, then, excuse me, just as it is now. This is what it looks like to be a peacemaker. Drawing near to God with dependence. Drawing near to others with deference. Always maintaining our eyes not on the things of this world, but on heavenly realities. The hopeful expectance that God is at work bringing all things to their intended ends. In this way, we see that Abram is far ahead of his time. Listen to how Jesus describes some of the blessings of the kingdom of God in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The Apostle Paul in Galatians connects Abram directly with Christ and says, Christ is the offspring that God promised to Abram. In Abram's profound humility, we see one who is pure in heart, who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, who is a peacemaker, who is put on the meekness that pertains to the life of the kingdom of God, which is breaking in for the blessing of the nations. And of course, Abram is only a small picture of what would ultimately come to the world through Christ himself, the true offspring of Abram, showing us what living by faith truly looks like. His ministry, Jesus' own ministry, was characterized by full dependence on his heavenly Father and the word of God. 
His life was characterized by expectance that God would use every circumstance. He repeatedly chose the way of deference, which ultimately led to his death. And as he was dying from the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Give them the blessing and I'll take their penalty. Just as Abram could have exerted his authority and taken the possession of his land of choice, he set it aside and let Lot pick first. Consider Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking upon the form of a servant. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, for our sake. Jesus is the one who truly shows us that in the midst of conflict, there is a way that's better than strife. It's the way of self-denial, the way of deference to others, of seeing others as more important than yourself. Abram was promised a great family, a great land. He was given much to do, but when strife set in, he laid all of that aside and chose the person in front of him as a true minister of reconciliation. Theologians call him a type of Christ in this regard, a picture that prepares us to recognize Christ who took all of us and is the true minister of reconciliation. So the question that I have for you this morning is do you know this Jesus? If you belong to Christ, then you have nothing to fear in deference to others, in living a life of humble self-denial because you have been given all things. If living in humble self-denial for the sake of others in the midst of any circumstance is unthinkable to you, then come to Jesus. Do you know what it means that Jesus has offered us all things? Have you come to the end of yourself where there's nowhere else to turn but Jesus? Have you lost your life that the life of Christ may be birthed in you? If you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian yet, my prayer for you is that you would see the beauty of the grace and peace that radiates from Abraham through Christ to us here this morning by the Holy Spirit. And come to faith in Jesus, the one who's truly dependent, the one who's truly deferent, the one who is truly expectant for all those times that we failed to be all those three things. Come to him and receive his mercy. For those of us in here who are Christians, my prayer is that we would hear this invitation to life as peacemakers. What does it look like to walk by faith in a world rife with conflict? What might it look like to cultivate dependence in your life? What does your life of worship look like? Do you prepare to come here on Sundays? Prepare your heart. Do you take time in God's word and in prayer to remember your dependence? What might it look like to cultivate expectation? What spills out of you? What stories are you telling to yourself and to others? Listen, this faith, this faith is a faith that oozes. Why are we still talking about the ten booms today? Is it because of Betsy's faith? In a manner of speaking, yes. But really, the reason we're still talking about the ten booms is because Corey, who survived, wrote a book and traveled for decades telling Betsy's story over and over and over and over and over again because it was too good not to. What is your story? It doesn't need to be like anyone else's. Of course it won't be because it's yours. Do you have expectancy that God will use your story for others? Next week, we're going to celebrate baptisms, three wonderful stories of God's grace. I can't wait until we all get to hear their stories and celebrate with them. 
I'm so grateful that God has not given them concentration camp stories. And I'm eager to see how God uses their stories just as they are for the encouragement of his people and for his glory. And more than that, how God will continue to use all of our stories of straining to live by faith to encourage and build one another up. You see, most of us won't write a book about our life or about our faithful sister. But God showing up in the ordinary parts of human experience and us testifying to how he's moving in our lives is how God oozes the story of grace through our lives into the community. This is how God encourages us in faith. What might it look like to cultivate this expectation? What stories are you telling? What stories of struggle not to do these three things are you telling, inviting others to pray for you? Because ultimately, if we're dependent people who are expectant that God will provide and bless, that he will use everything in our lives for his glory and for our good, we will be a people who are open-handed about our lives and about everything in them. We will be a people who are able to grow in our deference to others from a place of humble confidence that we don't have to grasp onto anything apart from Christ because everything will be given to us in return. I don't think we can overstate how badly the world needs peacemakers today. And I don't think we can possibly overstate the fact that the source of true peace is touched on in this passage that points us straight to Christ, the one whose humility dumbfounds us, turns the world upside down, and empowers us to be a people who are dependent, who are deferent, who are expectant, that he is working in the midst of everything. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that my eyes, that all of our eyes would never be drawn away from Jesus, but would instead be captivated by his grace, that you would preserve and seal us by your spirit, that Jesus' peace and joy would spill into all of our lives. I pray for help for me and for all of us to die to ourselves, for the faith that this death comes with great blessing, because blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Thank you for inviting us into your kingdom, Heavenly Father. Thank you for making a way, Lord Jesus, for us to be made right with you so that we can simply by faith come into your kingdom. I pray that you would teach us what it looks like to grow in dependence both individually and together as a church family. That you would help us to live in the way of deference, truly seeing others as more significant than ourselves. And I pray that you would give us a growing expectation, growing ever more with each passing day until you return, Lord Jesus that you are using all things and working all things for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Give us faith, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.